Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. But all have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though they were eating bread. They never call on the Lord, but there they are, overwhelmed with dread. Because God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Pray with me one more time, will you? Heavenly Father, be with me as I preach these words. Lord, open up the scriptures for me and for the believers gathered together here. Above all things, Lord, we pray that your name be glorified and that your name be lifted up and that you are made much of today. Speak to us, Father. Amen. So this first verse is a verse that's kind of common. It's, it's used uh, a bit. Um, you may have heard it before if you've spent some time in church, as I know a number of you have. But the first verse says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. We're going to spend a bit of time on this first verse, probably more time than the rest of the psalm combined, just talking through what this verse means, what it's talking about, because when we understand what this verse is talking about, what it's saying, then the rest of the chapter is really going to fall into place, and I think we'll see that play out. So first off, who is the fool? This is a phrase, again, if you've, if you've spent time in church, maybe if you've read the book of Proverbs, There's a lot of talk sometimes in the Bible about the fool. Now, the fool is kind of a caricature of a person, right? The fool does different things that are are foolish, that are dumb, that are a little stupid. The fool rejects God. In this verse, and in this case, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. When, when scripture writers use this phrase, the fool does this thing, they're using, it's kind of a figure of speech. They make up a character, this kind of epitome of stupidity, who is the fool. There's this guy. He is the fool. He does all of these stupid things. He rejects God. In this case, he says in his heart, there is no God. But that's really just, that's really just a poetic way of saying that something is foolish. Right? The world is not equally and uniquely divided into fools and wise people. Right? When we walk down the street, when we go into the store, we don't see, you know, we can't look at people and say, you're a fool, and then go to the next person and say, no, you're not a fool, you're actually a wise person. The reality is that, this is, that these are just foolish characteristics. So this is just a poetic way of saying, it is foolish when a person does this. And they kind of make up this character of the fool, 
in order to say, in order to say what is foolish and what is not. So in this case, they say, hey, the foolish person says in, in their heart, there is no God. It is foolish to say in your heart, there is no God. The reality is that each one of us in this room, though we may follow God, we can have a, a little bit of foolish actions in our heart. It can be easy if we just think of the fool as a character to say, hey, I'm not that fool. You know, I'm a different person than him, so therefore I must be totally fine and in the clear. But if we recognize that this is just a poetic way of saying that, you know, if you say in your heart there is no God, then that's foolish, then we can see that even in our own lives, even if we've been going to church all our lives. So the question is going to, the question for today is, are we foolish in this way? Do we do this thing that the caricature of the fool does? Do we say in our hearts that there is no God? Now, it might seem at first glance that when the fool says in his heart there is no God, that we're talking about sort of a philosophical declaration of atheism, something that's come to, you know, when someone's reasoned out, when they've looked at the logic, you know, they've, you know, they've come to the conclusion that there is no God. We call these people atheists, people who say, yes, I don't believe in God, and here are all the reasons why. I'm sure you've met some atheists in your time. Maybe you go to school with atheists. Maybe you work with atheists. People who say, you know what, I don't, I don't really think this whole God thing is, I think it's just kind of made up or whatever. For whatever reason, they have, they have a mental or logical issue with who God is and his existence. That's not what this passage is talking about. But before we go on and talk through what it's talking about, if, you're, if anyone in here is having struggles with you know, the existence of God, maybe there's something in, in your head that you're doubting a little bit, maybe you know someone who's struggling with it, I would recommend reading The Reason for God by Tim Keller. Excellent book that lays out the different arguments that there are for believing that God exists because there are good uh, arguments for believing that God exists. The name of that book, again, is The Reason for God by Tim Keller. But that's not what this is talking about. See, the psalmist here doesn't say that the fool says in his mind there is no God. That's, you know, that reasonable atheism that we talked about. This is more of a heart thing. This is more of, you know, forget what you say you believe on the outside. You know, what do we actually believe on the inside? In our very hearts, how do we act? Do we act as if there is a God? Or do we act as if there is no God? It is incredibly possible for people in this room to show up to church on Sundays, come and confess the Apostles' Creed as we did a few minutes ago, to say, Christians, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, to confess that along with everyone else, and still believe in their heart that there is no God. See the difference? There's a mental belief there's what we, what we assent to, what we confess, what we say we believe, and what we actually believe in the very core of ourself. See, if in our hearts we believe that there is no God, we will act as if there is no God. And that's really what the psalmist is getting at. It would be fine to paraphrase this psalm uh, like this. It is foolish to act as if there is no God. It is foolish to act as if there is no God. That is the point of this. So as, as we go throughout the psalm this morning, I'm going to ask you, Christian, how do you act? 
Do we come to church and confess that there is a God and sing the songs that we're supposed to sing and then go home and live out our lives as if there is no God? We live in a culture that does. We live in a culture that confesses that they say they are predominantly Christian. I think that the um, 80-something percent is the, is the typical ratio that's kind of floated out there for who in the United States is Christian and who is not. Now, I would, I'm willing to bet money that the vast majority of those Christians do not believe in their hearts that there is a God. They may say that they believe that. They may have you know, a verse in their Facebook profile picture. You know, they may go to church on Christmas and Easter, maybe even every Sunday. But in their very hearts of hearts, they are convinced that there is no God. Another thing that this could be talking about, another kind of way to paraphrase this first verse, is by saying the foolish person says in their heart that the God in heaven, the God of the Bible, is not the actual God who exists. Maybe there's a God up there, but the God as revealed in his word isn't that God. So a few years ago, there were a couple sociologists that did a study on what people believe in the United States of America. I believe this study was done among teenagers. So this would be, you know, people who are roughly my age nowadays, um, you know, upper 20s, younger 30s. What do people in America believe about God? And these two sociologists came to the conclusion that most people don't hold to, you know, the historic Christian faith, even though they say they might. They actually believe in a religion, which they entitled called moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. If those, if those words are too long for you, that's okay. What that basically means is this. Most people in the United States believe, yes, there is a God. You know, you can go ask Joe Schmo on the street who doesn't think that it's important to go to church, and you can say, hey, do you believe that there's a God who created the world? He would say yes, which is good. We believe that too. We just confessed to that a few minutes ago. But a lot of other people believe that as well. Muslims believe that. Jewish people believe that. A lot of people who are just not very religious believe that there's a God. But what moralistic therapeutic deism means, what it, at its core, is that people just generally believe that, you know, there's a God. He wants us to be nice to other people. And as long as we're basically good, as long as we're nice to other people, you know, he may, he may answer a few of our prayers because he does really want us to be happy. So he may come down and, and answer some prayers if we're having a particularly tough time. But at the end of the day, you know, the whole religion thing, it's not a big deal. God's kind of far off. And if, we li- if we've lived a basically good life, we go to heaven when we die. That's what a lot of people believe. A lot of people who say that they are Christians. Now, I believe, you know, no one's actually putting on their Facebook profile their religion is moralistic therapeutic deism. You don't have to know that. That's just a word that was made up to describe this. But I think that if, if we're honest with ourselves, this, this kind of cultural religion that we just basically have to be good and that God basically wants us to be happy, and as long as we're basically good, we go to heaven when we die. If we're honest with ourselves, that religion is pretty common, right? That's something that we are familiar with. It surrounds us. Maybe we even struggle with it, if we're honest, we struggle with believing that a little bit ourselves. I like this quote that kind of, kind of describes this. I'm going to read it to you. It says, God is something, in this, in this view, something like a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call. He takes care of any problems that arise. 
He professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves and does not become too personally involved in that process. God is sort of like a divine butler. He'll answer some of our prayers, and he's pretty much happy with us as long as we're nice to other people. That is not what scripture reveals who God is. It's a different gospel. That is, for people who hold that, whether it's, you know, whether they'll say that, you know, as long as you have to be basically good to go to heaven, or they just believe it on the inside, that is a way that the foolish person can say that there is no God. They say, the God in heaven is not the God of the Bible, but it's actually this other God that most people in the culture believe that he is. But ultimately, if we look at kind of how that makes sense, it, it really falls apart, that belief system. So if we believe that, most people, like as long as you're pretty good, you go to heaven. That, that sounds pretty good, right? You know, it's not in the Bible, but setting that aside, it sounds pretty good. But it begs the question, what actually is good? What does it mean to be a good person? So if you ask someone who goes to church every single Sunday, who's dedicated their lives to, you know, helping the poor, who donates all sorts of money to charity, if you ask them if they're a good person, they'll probably say yes, right? And if you ask them why, they'll say, well, I go to church every Sunday, and I've dedicated my life to feeding the poor, and I donate all of my money or a lot of my money to charity. And I think we would all agree that more or less those are really, really good things to do, right? But what about a person who maybe doesn't do all that stuff? Maybe they go to church Christmas and Easter when they can. Um, they don't dedicate their lives to feed the poor, but they give some money to the poor around Christmas time. You know, they'll pop 10 or $20 in the Salvation Army kettle that time of year. If you ask that person whether or not they are a good person, what do you think they'll say? They'll probably say, yes, of course I'm a good person. And if you ask them why, they'll say, well, I go to church a couple times a year. You know, I believe in God. I try to be a good person. You know, I'll donate a few, bu a few bucks to the Salvation Army when it's time uh, in Christmas. What about the person who's not particularly religious at all? They don't go to church at all. They don't really donate any money to the poor or dedicate their lives to charity. You know, maybe they've done a few things. Maybe they've cheated on their spouse, but they haven't killed anybody. Are they a good person? What if you asked them? You said, hey, are you a good person? They would probably say, yes. And if you asked them why, they would probably say, well, you know, I'm I haven't really done anything major wrong. I've slipped up a couple times, but I haven't done anything really, really bad. I try to respect people, and I haven't killed anybody. So yeah, I would probably say that I'm a good person. But are they a good person? Where is the line? What about a person who's been convicted of murder? I'm sure a number of them would say, you know, maybe, maybe they're not a good person. But I don't think it would be too hard to find a person who has killed someone who if you go up to them and say, are you a good person? They would say, yeah. You know, yeah, I killed somebody, but the per they had it coming to them. They, they deserved it. So, I mean, I, I'm not going to kill just anybody. I'm not killing for fun. They had it coming to them. They, des they deserved it. Are they a good person? No, they're not. I think we can all agree on that one. But the question is, where is the bar? And who gets to set that bar? You see, if you notice, every single person, if we're talking about the line of who is good and who is not, every single person sets that below themselves so that they clear it. Every single person. If you ask the person who's dedicated their lives to charity, who's dedicated their lives to, um, 
you know, to feeding the poor, they go to church every Sunday, you ask them who is a good person, they would probably say that a lot of the people that we just described are not good people. But what makes that person's definition of who is good and who is not any better than the murderer's definition? Or the irreligious person who doesn't give money to charity, but he's never killed anyone, so he's probably okay. What makes their definition any better? So if we as a culture... Hopefully, we don't believe that in this room. But if we as a broader culture, you know, you go out to Flint and you survey people, if we just generally believe that good people go to heaven when they die, the question remains, who is good and who gets to decide that? If we have a a twisted view of who God is, if we say in our heart that the God who is actually in heaven is a God who's going to, he's going to be fine with some of my flaws, some of my failures. If we have a twisted view, we find ourselves out of step with what scripture says. We find ourselves out of step with what this psalm says. Because the Bible here makes absolutely, makes everything absolutely clear. The psalmist writes, they are corrupt, their deeds are vile, there is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away, all have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. There's no one who does good. So at the end of the day, if we really think about kind of our cultural religion, the dominant moralistic therapeutic deism that dominates our culture, that dominates kind of the spirituality of most Americans, ultimately it falls apart. Because really, God's the only one who can set that bar for who is good, for the standard that we have to meet. And ultimately, every single one of us falls short of that. If this psalm sounds familiar to you, maybe it's because we we know it from the book of Romans. Paul, in building his argument in the book of Romans about saving grace in Jesus Christ, he uses this psalm quite a bit. His point is that we can't become righteous by following the Old Testament law, right? It's not by, you know, keeping the Sabbath or by circumcision or any any of those Jewish things. We can't keep the Sabbath, or excuse me, we can't We can't become righteous just by following our own consciences. At the end of the day, everyone has turned aside. Everyone, in Paul's words, they see who God is in heaven and they reject him. They become futile in their thinking and they start worshiping created things instead of the actual creator. Everyone, inherently, naturally, when they are born, starts to turn aside, reject worshiping God. Every single one, because of this, cannot measure up to who God is, to what God has done. They cannot meet his righteous standard. That is every single one of us. Let's put, pause and, we'll put a pause in that conversation if we can, and let's read the rest of the psalm and kind of look at what's going on there. Verse number four, do all of these evildoers do nothing? They devour my people as though they were eating bread. They never call on the Lord. But there they are, overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. To kind of come back to the Psalms a little bit, last week we looked at Psalm 6, which is what we call an individual lament. The psalmist is crying out for himself. In that case, it was for the healing of some kind of disease that he was, that he was stuck with. This is what we call a community lament. The psalmist is crying out 
For himself, yes, but on behalf of a broader community. We picture David here, the psalmist, crying out on behalf of Israel because there are some unrighteous people who are persecuting his people. We don't know details of this. Maybe this is an amalgamation of a few experiences. You know, there's a few different places where we could put this in the biblical story, but ultimately where that lands isn't as important. But David is crying out on behalf of a people. He says, there are all of these unrighteous people, and they are here, they are persecuting the righteous. They are persecuting my people. They are persecuting the people who follow after God. And the question, the question is raised, and maybe you've raised it in your own minds, maybe you haven't, but the question, the question is begged here. If everyone, you know, God looks down over everyone to see if there's any righteous, if everyone is righteous, or excuse me, if no one is righteous, everyone is found to be fallen short, how then, at the end of this psalm, can David describe people who are righteous? How does that work? It's a really good question, isn't it? How can there be righteous people if everyone is unrighteous? How can there be a core community of people who are persecuted by these unrighteous people if everyone's unrighteous? I want to read to you one of my favorite passages of Scripture. As for you, this is Paul writing to a community of believers, a community of Christians who confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. So he writes to them, he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So Paul here uses different language than the psalm does, but it's basically the same idea. In the psalm, it is there is no one righteous. No one in God's perfect gaze finds themselves to be, to be measuring up in God's sight. Paul uses the phrase of walking down a wicked path. But the idea is the same. Everyone by nature walks down a wicked path. No one is righteous. So how do we go from being having everyone who is unrighteous to some people who are righteous? How does that work? And the answer is found in verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast for we are God's handiwork. Brothers and sisters, if our salvation depended on ourselves, There'd be no hope for us. Because at the end of the day, the only righteousness that's found, it's not found in us, there's none righteous, no, not one. The only righteousness that can be found is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's read the last verse of this psalm. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. David here is looking for deliverance. His people are oppressed. There's the unrighteous on the outside. They're coming after his own people. So he cries out for deliverance. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. Now, Zion is the place where God dwelled. 
It was the mountain, Mount Zion, you might be familiar with. It's the mountain on which the temple was built. They had the tabernacle there. It's where the presence of God was. David's prayer here was for the presence of God to become manifest in all of Israel, for God to come out from where he was, to stretch out his arm, and to redeem his people from the evildoers. And as we look forward, well, as we look back, but going forward from David, we see with the benefit of hindsight what this really looks like. That looks like Jesus Christ coming down to die for us. He lived a perfect life. He did not die because he deserved to die. He's the only one who did not. He's the only one who was righteous. But he died because we deserve it. He took the punishment for our sins. And he rose again from the dead, literally and bodily. He is alive today so that we can have eternal life. So there's kind of a dual fulfillment of this verse, where David's crying out for deliverance from God. On the one hand, God's people can be redeemed if they place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation, not, not, of, not of themselves. Salvation does not come from us. Salvation comes from God. It comes from Jesus Christ and him alone. And we know that at the, at the, on that final day, when the sheep are divided from the goats, when the believers are divided from the unbelievers, we know that the believers will be saved. We know that they will both be saved from their own sin, and they will be saved from the oppression of those who reject God. Deliverance will come from Zion, ultimately and completely. God's kingdom will come on this earth. We will experience full and complete and total salvation from our sins, even as we experience that in part now. We struggle with our sins, and we long for the day when God delivers us from those sins that we struggle with. And on that day, we know that we will be saved from our sins, and we will be saved from every bit of persecution, every bit of wickedness that surrounds us. We will be saved. Deliverance has come from Zion, and deliverance will come from Zion, even though there is none righteous, no, not one. It's because of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone that we can have any mercy any salvation, any hope. I encourage everyone in this room to examine your hearts. Are you foolish? Is there any aspect of you that is foolish? Maybe you don't identify with the caricature of the fool. But are there any ways in which you, in your own heart, act as if there is no God, or act as if the God who is in heaven is really a different God than this God? If that's so, I encourage you to repent of your sins. Come to the cross of Jesus Christ. Look to him for forgiveness. Look to him for salvation. Because at the end of the day, we can't be good enough ourselves. It can only come through Jesus Christ. And if you're here and you've never known the salvation that is in Jesus Christ, if you've been living the life of the fool, come. Repent of your sins. Believe the gospel that there is eternal life in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ alone. And he will forgive you of your sins and he will deliver you to eternal life on that last day, free from all sin, free from all trouble and trial. Let's pray together.